The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Hey, go ahead and take a seat. Um, Some of you already did that. That was great. Um, Like you know what you're doing here. Hey, um, I am going to sum up in just a couple minutes while Janie is looking, uh, trying to locate on the DVD a little bit of a clip. And it's already at the right spot. Well, still, I I shall sum up, okay? Uh, How many of you, again, I saw a few hands, but it was from the back. How many of you have seen the book of Eli? Okay, you have. And the rest of you, after this review and encouragement, are going to run right out to, you know, for your $1 to red box tonight, and you're going to be loving that baby. It's a beautiful thing. Now, a little bit of uh, just a caveat, sure. You're probably wondering yourself, self, how do we get a redeeming message out of a movie with a kill count of about 43? Unofficially, of course. Um, that's a great question. And, and it, it's my wife has not seen it. She says... She likes to see movies other than just a chick flick, but this definitely does not qualify as what she would call a chick flick. So she watched, when I was watching this with my two older boys, my youngest boy is only eight, and even I won't stretch it that far. Um, she was watching like a rerun of The Bachelorette or something like that. And there was, <laughs> there was a fantastic debate around our house that night. Who watched the least edifying television that night? So it was, it was good. But... Um, I really do. Um, I think this is a, an interesting film, but I'm going to use it tonight as a jumping off point to talk about two main um, elements that are in the midst of the film, which are this, um, this idea of the mystery and power around the word of God and also an understanding of calling in one's life, purpose, and really in, in uh, Eli's case here, mission. Um, because I think... Um, Two things that jump out at me in the 20 plus years that I've worked with college students um, and worked alongside college students in young life, that that two of the things that jump out all the time are students coming to me saying, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. That's a question. Maybe you've never asked that, but... I bet you have, trying to figure out, what's, how do I do that? What, what, are, what are markers or clues that I'm supposed to look for to, to figure out if God is calling me towards this or that or, or whatever it might be? And then the second thing that's linked to that a little bit is, you know, how do I read the Bible? How do I really understand or read and understand? And, and the interesting thing is part of the answer that I give on the first one is, if you want to understand God's will, you really need to become a fan of the Word of God. Allow it to impact your life. Um, and so the second part is to give them what I'll give you tonight, a couple of helps, applications, hints, cheats, ways to trick your mind into believing that you currently have an incredible love for the, for the Word of God and for acting that way for a period of time. And as you do, I think you will have this tremendous love for the Word of God, which will help you in understanding God's will for your life as you move forward. So um, anyhow, here's the, uh, it's not much of a spoiler to say this, that early on in this movie, we find uh, the solitary figure, it's a post-apocalyptic, say that 10 times fast, not right now though, um, movie. And it's really, for those of you that are fans of that genre, and there's like three of us, um, it's, it's, I think it's really excellent. It's the setting and all the stuff in terms of um, the, the, uh, 
Yeah, well, really, just the, the depiction of what this post-whatever traumatic event, nuclear sort of disaster might be. It's really bleak. It's filmed in a way where the light is kind of interesting, and um, it catches your attention right away that this is a different world, like an entirely different place. So um, Eli is this character, and the first thing we see from him is he's, he's an accomplished bow hunter, which is a fantastic thing, I'm assuming, in life post-apocalypse. Um, and is able to kind of feed himself and, and do some things but um, to survive. But that he's convinced he's being led by God and he's heading west. We know this just really right from the beginning. And he has a book that travels with him. And you don't want to touch the book. You don't want to lay your hand upon him to try and grab the book. There's an interesting scene for those of you that have seen it where he says to the guy, I'm going to tell you one time, one more time, to not place your hand upon me. If you do it again, you won't get that hand back. He doesn't get the hand back. It's fantastic <laughs> and decently bloody. Sure, I'll give you that. But uh, nonetheless, the man said what he would do, and then he did it. Anyhow, so Eli's heading west, being led by God, and he has in his possession what he believes to be one if not the, the last known copy of the King James Version of the Bible. The Bible is non-existent in this post-apocalyptic world. So here's Eli in the midst of this, walking west, being led by God to do something. And there's some spoiler alerts along the way but that, that I'll give you. But uh, I want to just show this clip right now. He has found a person along the way who's helping him. Or actually, he's helping her. She's trying to escape from this kind of town that's been set up during that time where someone else wants the word of God, but for a completely different reason. The guy's name is Carnegie, and he really wants, he remembers when the Bible was around and how people, think about this, there's kind of, there's two different schools of thought. People that reviewed the movie think that it is pro-Christian or gives a worldview that is spiritually, you know, puts Christianity in a positive light, and others that say it's totally negative because they basically say there's many that believe that this event that happened that caused the apocalypse was caused by those who were believers in the, in the word. But this Carnegie guy at least remembers a time before the apocalypse where he would look back and say there were people that had that thing, the Bible, and they were able to control other people. So two different things. Here's your protagonist. He has the word of God and would like to deliver it to this one place. And then the, uh, you know, the evil guy there who is wanting to take it from him for his own purposes. And along the way, um, these people are now chasing a woman named Solara and Eli. And she's interested in this book that he reads every night. So here's, here, just watch the clip and we'll pick up from there. Okay, so um, here they are. He's got the word of God. Okay, here comes the major spoiler alert. But you can't close your ears or anything because you won't understand the rest of my talk. It won't make any sense to you. And by the way, if you're an attentive moviegoer at all, it's not a huge spoiler. You'd pick up on it early on by some of the ways that Eli acts. But he's blind. He was blinded somehow in the event um, of the apocalypse. And so he is taking this last known copy of the King James Version of the Bible, which, check it out, another spoiler alert, there's, if she went over to grab that Bible, which later in this scene she does, she tries to, which is kind of an interesting thing. She's hungry, although she does not know how to read, for this book that he would leave everything for, that he would just sacrifice everything for, and that he seems so committed to, and that it is so impactful in his life. What's interesting to me, this is just a movie, but um, wouldn't it be awesome if other people looked into our lives and felt like the Word of God was so impactful in our lives that it was obvious in the way that we lived the rest of our lives, that there was something. You know, uh, just a side note to that, 
uh, in the New Testament, one of the only things I've been told, and I, I've kind of looked looked after this as well, and if you can find another event, go ahead and tell me that, that that's fine. I'm not saying this is exactly, there's, there's no exception to this rule, but the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to do was to teach them, said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he taught them many things, but that was the one thing that the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why do you think that is? I think one of the clearest reasons that makes sense to me is this, that they saw him praying and they saw that it made a difference in his life. Over and over in the New Testament, you'll read time, a chapter will start like this. Early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus went away, got away from where the people were to went and went and spent time in prayer, talking to God the Father. So here's this interesting thing. Jesus, who was one with the Father, went to spend time with the Father on purpose. And it so impacted his life that his disciples, those closest to him, said, teach us how to do that because we see your life and this must make a difference. Here we are, people of the book. God's letter to us, more than an instruction manual, more than a love letter, but absolutely God's word to us, active and alive, supposed to make a difference in our lives. Would other people see us, see you, in the light where they would desperately want the book that you have, not because it's hidden on the top shelf somewhere in the back, but because they want to know why you have the one book that's just ragged and torn a little bit because it makes a difference in your life. Well, anyhow, this happens with, with her, but had she even gotten a hold of it, she could have done nothing when it won. Eli says to her, you can't read, so it's of no use to her. And she says back to him, then teach me to read. She's hungry for what's in the middle of that. It's amazing kind of for a Hollywood movie for us, I think. Um, but it's a Braille version of the King James Bible. And so at the very end, when he completes his mission, he shows up to where else but Alcatraz, because let's get that rock in another movie if we can. That would be really, really cool. And rows out to Alcatraz. And basically they, they stop him at the gates and are like, you know, and he goes, I have a, a, King James, a, version of, a King James version of the Bible. And they let him in. And then this guy comes down, whoever is the curator of Alcatraz, comes down and is, you know, like, where is it? And he says, get a bunch of paper. And he gets a pen. And he says, write down exactly what I say. And he recites the Bible because at this point he's had to give up in order to, to save his own life and the life of Solara that's with him, give up the, the Braille version of the Bible that he has. So he has nothing except for this. He's read it every day for 30 days. And he's memorized the Bible. And he, go ahead, he goes ahead and recites the Bible verbatim, and then they have now this copy of the Bible that they can put in this, you know, on the shelf to kind of complete the different works that they have. Interesting thing. Hopefully enough of a tease to make you want to take a look at it. I think it's an interesting film and, and worth your watching. But for me, the two things that jump out again are this idea of what does it mean to, to understand God's will um, to where we feel like we have a sense of calling upon our lives. And then the other thing is, how is God's word so powerful, at least in this setting, that it could impact our lives in a way that others would notice? And what are the secrets, if there are any, so that that we could become people of the book in a way that maybe we aren't right now? Will you pray with me that God will bring out what he wants um, as we take a look at a couple instances in his word? God, I thank you for tonight, for the opportunity to be together. Thank you already for... Um, just a chance to hear from folks in the process of doing the hard work of the reality of reconciliation. What does that mean in our lives here today? That we've been 
given the ministry of reconciliation, we understand from your word, it's as though we're your ambassadors. But to live that out on a daily basis, we rejoice and we pray for those, our brothers and sisters, as they continue to live that out in their world, in our world. God, help us as we look for your vision and your calling, your will in our life, and how that balances with the clarity of your words spoken and written to us in the Bible. Make it come alive to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, there are a number of instances in particular with blind people in the Bible that God tends to use. The Bible uses this idea of blindness in a different way than most of us, I think, um, look at quite naturally. Well, initially, if you were a blind person in the day of Jesus, you were in a, in a, in a difficult position. You couldn't bring any income naturally into your family unless you were a beggar of some sort. So you were kind of in a compromised position. If you think of blind Bartimaeus and um, his encounter with Jesus, it's fantastic um, in the end. But in the beginning, it's Jesus and all the people that are following Jesus that are kind of impressed with who Jesus is coming along the side of the road. And Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. And they, and they basically tell him to get off to the side because somebody important is coming through, which essentially means you're not. Here comes somebody who's important. But I love Bartimaeus goes, well, who is it? And he's heard enough about Jesus that when he hears it's Jesus, what does he do? Does he hush to the side of the road? Does he say, oh, yeah, I'm not really important. What he does is scream out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they tell him to be quiet. And the Bible says this, that he screams all the louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it ends well for him. Jesus calls him over. He comes running over. What do you want? I want to see. And God, through his son, heals this child. It's an incredible thing that happens. But there's two other encounters that, um, that I just wanted to mention tonight that jump out. One is the um, temporary blinding of Saul, who becomes Paul. And then the other one um, is the healing of a man who was born blind that's, um, that we find in the ninth chapter of the book of John. Really interesting healing in that he's healed and then Jesus leaves and now he's in front of all the religious authorities and they can't figure out what happened. And it's actually quite humorous in some of the things that happened there. But what jumps out with, um, at me right away is that God can use blindness and does so in the Bible to teach us about spiritual perception. Meaning, Jesus says in this one encounter, it's, it's not your, your physical blindness that's a problem. It's the blindness in your heart. It's the fact that you don't see. I'm right in your midst and you can't understand. It's been written for you, but you still don't understand it. You're a teacher of the law, Nicodemus, and, still, and you don't understand these things. All these different encounters where Jesus isn't worried about a person's physical situation, but the condition of their heart, if it's closed off to him or if it's open. And so Saul is one of those people. It doesn't mean that Saul, by the way, wasn't seeking after God. He was very zealous in his pursuit of God, but he was closed off in one way. He had a picture of what the God of the universe was like and what Messiah meant, and Jesus didn't fit into that picture. And so his followers didn't fit in that picture. And since he was so zealous and since he, was, he believed strongly in what he was called to do, what was he out doing? He was out gathering up and imprisoning those who were followers of the of Jesus Christ, those who claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he finds himself, and I don't have the scripture there, I'll just refer to it tonight, but in, in, um, 
in Acts chapter 9, it says this. Um, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letter, letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women. He might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. In this situation, God purposely blinds someone to get his attention. Quite effectively, I might add. Saul's literally riding on his high horse, quite sure of what is in in front of him and his purpose in life. And God just changes everything in one instance. Boom. Knocks him off and says, the one that you're persecuting is the one you should be following. I'm about to change your life. I don't know if you ever feel like Saul, like that's the way your life changed, where God just got a hold of you. Maybe you were running from God or you were absolutely even defiant towards God. And then God just got a hold of you one day and it changed your life forever. We all come to to Jesus Christ in different ways. But if you're not that person, you probably know of somebody who has come to know the Lord in such a fashion or that you pray for every night. That that there's something in their heart that just says, I'm not sure who God is, but I don't have any room for this Jesus. Just keep room in your heart. Keep praying for that person. And if that person was you, rejoice in the fact that God was bigger than even the hurdles that you set out for him. Big enough to say, there's nothing to keep me from you. For he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Isn't that a great thing? That's God's desire. That's what God's desire was for Saul, but he also had plans for Saul. Here's Saul, this incredible leader, by the way, changes his name later to Paul, which is translated as little. His character is completely changed such that we have to call him something different because when God gets a hold of a person, even if he has to do something dramatic like blind them, look out when God gets a hold of a life. Sometimes I, I pray, even though I already know the Lord, that he would have permission today to get a hold of more of my life than I've allowed him to have up to this point. I just don't want to get blinded if that's at all possible. I kind of add that as an addendum to the prayer. So anyhow, he's led into this place where he has to um, be cared for by someone else. And for three days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. And then somebody comes and prays for him and he gets this new calling. And much like Eli in this place, he knows now what his purpose is. And kind of the end of that, of that, um, that passage in Acts chapter 9 says this, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and once he began to preach right away in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and said, isn't, the, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more pa- powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. The Bible uses blindness in this case to teach us about spiritual perception. Paul was trying to run after God, but he was trying to fit God into the view that he had. And and God in Christ had to completely change his view. I bet you there's some things in your life that are in mine where God has to completely change your view. Isn't it fantastic that God has patience for us, even as we seek after him? That there's maybe some things you kind of go, God, I, I hear I'm supposed to believe like this. Or it seems like everyone else in my life thinks that 
that this is how I ought to pray or, or, or what it looks like to follow after you post-graduation. I'm not so sure of those things. God is great in that he's merciful, he's patient, and deals with us. But I do believe that ultimately what we want, that we don't want to be knocked off our horse, is what happened to Saul. We want to be able to say, God, have your way in my life, whatever it costs, because God's way is best. And you're a winner. Actually, I have one extra minute here, so but I don't know how to turn my timer off. We had a bet, you know, and it was a ridiculous one, but moving forward. <laughs> um, the second opportunity um, to, to encounter Jesus dealing with a, with a person in blindness um, is in John chapter 9, where Jesus heals this person who is born blind. And there's this incredible question that kind of works its way through Scripture, too, when you look at someone who's born with some sort of infirmity in any way that comes up. It's an interesting one. We wouldn't ask it very often. It's not very politically correct. But the question was this. Did this man sin or did his parents? Do you catch kind of the root of that? Like, there's something wrong with this guy. So this person must be somehow outside of the plan that you have for them. It's a horrible thing to ask. Because isn't it incredible? I mean, if you've ever been around anybody who is physically broken or mentally challenged to realize that, well, I can only speak for me. God has taught me some of the deepest lessons of my life from kids who, in, in young life, this group that we call Capernaum, kids with special needs, who are, are they're never going to get beyond about age eight mentally. And yet, I'm not sure I've ever taught them a lesson <laughs> But I'm decently sure that God has taught me incredible things through them. But still, sometimes we look at and kind of go, why did this happen is the bigger question. And really, one of the things that, that in this instance that I think the answer would be is that God allowed this blindness to do two things. One, to show his ability in the midst of our inability. We couldn't change anything. To show again that spiritual blindness is a far greater dilemma than physical blindness. And then the third thing is this, to show his, his love and mercy for us in the fact that he desires to set people free. That not everybody's going to be set free from their infirmities this side of heaven, but one day we will all, we will all be free. One of my greatest, greatest memories of being at a Young Life camp was with a bunch of kids with special needs, and we had so many wheelchairs in camp that week. And in the last the last thing that we did was this thing called say-so where kids would get an opportunity to, to tell others what had happened in their life that week. And at the same time, people were loading wheelchairs, kind of the big wheelchairs that they used to get throughout the camp that week, to the buses. And so they lifted a bunch of these kids into camp so they could kind of get their wheelchairs loaded. And as I'm walking alongside, getting ready, I was a speaker that week, and I'm getting ready, you know, just kind of busy, walking alongside, and somebody grabs my hand and goes, hey, don't miss this. And I go, what? Looks over there, and there's this stack of wheelchairs. He said, in heaven, there's just going to be stacks of them, right? There'll be stacks of wheelchairs because they won't be needed anymore. And nor will the things that are brokenness will be set aside as well. On this side of eternity, we deal with those things. But God allows us to, in some cases, to glorify himself, to show that the physical infirmity is not the biggest problem, and also and God's mercy in, in timing sometimes to also show his great grace and set us free. 
So that's what happens with this guy. And at the end of his story, essentially the religious leaders just don't know what to do with him. They're like, what happened to you? You were faking all along. No, no, no. They bring in his parents like he was born blind. But his parents are afraid to tell the whole story because they're afraid that they'll get kicked out of the synagogue. So they go, ask him. He's a grown man. He'll tell you. And he goes, hey, here's what I know. I was blind, but now I see. What's the big deal here? And they're like, they wanted him to say that Jesus was like the sinful man. He goes, I think he must be a prophet because God doesn't listen to a sinful man, right? And so if God listened to his prayer, he must be something incredible. And they're like, tell us more what you know. And they're like, and what the guy says back to them is great. Why? Do you want to be his disciple too? Oh, that made him really mad. They're like, no, 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 don't, don't try and mock us. We don't need to be a disciple of this evil man. And he's like, I don't understand what your problem is. But they cast him out of the synagogue, out of community. And he's out on his own, right? And Jesus finds him. It's one of my favorite parts. He finds him afterwards, comes up alongside him and says, he'd heard that he'd been thrown out when he found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you now have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And incredibly, for those who don't want to, in, in, in this world, who don't want to believe that Jesus ever claimed to be anything like the son of God, Jesus received his worship. And as a, there's just no way that that is right for one who was a follower, who was a Jew. A good Jew would not receive worship knowing that that's blasphemy to worship anything other than the God Almighty, the Lord your God, the God, God who is one. We can't worship somebody else. And here's Jesus who just said to someone else, I am the son of the man, son of man. And the man began to worship him and Jesus received his worship. The Pharisees were following along with him. And Jesus said this, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And the Pharisees said, what are you saying that we're blind too? And he said, if you were blind physically, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you see, your guilt remains. You see, Jesus wants us to have our vision corrected. And just like in this, this, this movie, the way that our vision can be corrected in this day and age is for us to become better acquainted with the word of God. Because you and I don't walk up daily to the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ. But God's word is available to us every single day that we may not be spiritually blind, that we may know God more today than we did yesterday, and that we can also see his purpose for our life as we move forward towards eternity. Let me just give you three things. I'll close with this. Three little applications on how to do that in your life. Um, how many of you have had a vision test any time this last year? You know how they always put those things on your eyes and then they kind of go, is it better one, better two, better one, better two? It's like a little game. I know that they get back later and they kind of go, I didn't even change them at all. It's just so fun to do. Anyhow, here's, um, maybe we can go back and forth between these two slides. One and two. Is it better one or better two? Now, better one, how about better two? I like how they always do this. Then you, can you, you, you sort of go, two, and then they go last one. Okay, one last time. Better one, and you go, no, or two. Boom. That's just it. God's saying this to us in Psalm 119, 119, verse 18. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may see the wonderful things in your law. It's a prayer. It's a cry. It should be our cry. And it's a prayer that if you lift that prayer up to the Lord, God will answer you. We'll be faithful in that because God wants to open your eyes up to the wonderful thing in his law. So God will absolutely receive that, that prayer. You know, I was with a guy 
today, I was at, uh, my youngest son was at John Brockman's basketball camp, which is really, really sweet. I have this strange encounter. Uh, when John was going to be going into his freshman year, year here at UW, he went just before that to a discipleship weekend up in Malibu, this camp with Young Life, and I was a speaker there. So I got to know him. He said, oh, he'll never remember me, but, you know, he's kind of cool. He was a really nice kid. So then we exchanged numbers, and for the next three years, while he would, when he would come to Tucson, he would text me and offer me tickets to go watch the Huskies play the Wildcats. I apparently am a very bad luck charm, and so we lost every single game, and mostly by like 30 in Tucson. It was a horrible thing. Watch it. Watch it, Mason. Got a wildcat in the house. But so um, anyhow, um, long story short, we're Facebook friends. What are you going to do with that? So um, I'm Facebook stalking him last night, as I'm apt to do. And uh, he posts, uh, hey, it's still not too late to sign up for my basketball camp if you'd like to. And so I'm thinking, I got my son this week, and my other two kids are out, out of town at Young Life Camp, and why wouldn't we go? So we sent him there, and this morning I hear him say, it was, it was great, got to say hi to him. My, my eight-year-old son, who was just shooting baskets at the end of lunch as they're getting ready to go, Brockman's walking nearby, and he, he goes up to him and goes, hey, I think you know my dad. It's great. Isn't that fantastic? My eight-year-old still thinks of the two parties, I'm the more famous. That's awesome. <laughs> I think you know my dad. And, and I said, well, what did he say? He goes, what's your dad's name? He goes, Steve Blacksmith. He goes, I do know your dad. So later on, came up to him and said hello. But at the beginning of the day, he said something that was really incredible. One, two, two things. First one was this, that his nose has been broken eight times. If you've ever seen Brockman play basketball, you're like, it's a miracle, but it's not like 108 times because he just dives all over the place. And I, but I want to know, and I'm going to try and see if I can find out tomorrow, what's the nose count that he has broken? Because that's what matters a little bit more to me. Because, you know, he's busted a few nose along the way. But I thought, of course, because he just plays all out. And he said this. The second thing that stuck out to me was this. He said, we're going to do the fundamentals here because no matter what else happens this week, work really hard. Because when you work hard, you're going to get better. When you get better, you're going to win, and winning's fun. And all these little kids are like, yeah, that's kind of cool. So what are the things we need to do? The fundamentals so that we can have our eyes opened that it will be better too than it is one. Some of the fundamentals are this. The first thing is we need to look away. Look away from whatever it is that you've been looking at instead of looking towards Jesus and looking towards the Word of God. If you spend, if you're saying to yourself, even a portion of yourself tonight is saying, I want to fall more in love with the word of God. I think I'd like to, I'd like to know God's word more. It's going to have to take some time away from something else that you look at right now. Maybe it's the bachelor pad. I don't know. That seems trashy enough that you can just turn that off. You know, there's, there's the bachelor, but the bachelor pad seems like there's a line and then you've crossed it. Okay. <laughs> and so, and, and if the line is not there for you and you just love trashy TV, certainly when that shows over and dating in the dark comes on, there is the time you've been looking for. God's ordained it that you can now turn off the TV and read the word of God. Agreed? Agreed. Amen. Okay. So, um, Look away from the things that you've been looking towards. The easy things in this one are the non-edifying things. Are you looking at stuff that you shouldn't be looking at? Uh, is, is porn an issue in your life? Is, is looking at, at the world and saying, I covet this, I want this, this is the plan I have for my life. These are the things I want. Look away from those things. Look away. God will provide for you all that you need. Seek first his kingdom. Look away from whatever it is that you've looked at to provide life for yourself. Look at the one who can provide life and look at, at what he's given us to follow more closely after him, the word of God.
So look away from some things. Look toward God's word. Um, in some ways, you'd say that in America in particular, we look at God's word all the time. This recent Barna study says that 47% of Americans read the Bible every week. That 91% of American households own at least one Bible. The average household owns four Bibles. Which means the Bible publishers manage to sell 25 to 40 million copies a year of a book that almost everyone already has. I don't think it's the number. I don't think we need more Bibles. But here's the question that I would ask you. Instead of, I mean, that just makes me go, wow, there's a lot of Bibles out there. How come some people aren't reading them? But instead of just pointing at them, I'm looking at the other fingers in my hand that are pointing back at me to say this. What about me? I would like to know my Bible better this year than I did last year. And so I'm going to look away from some things that I've looked at. I'm going to look towards God's word. And I'm going to try to trick myself into getting into a pattern of reading after God's word. And God himself has given us ways to do that. God's word in Deuteronomy, there's a slide for this. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your, and all, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Make them a part of your everyday life. Talk about them as you come and go. Write them on your door frames. We actually decided to do that with our third child because we were just wondering if we'd screwed up too much with our first and second children, who seemed to be okay, sure. But uh, apparently somewhere in between raising a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old, as we got the trailer, who's now 8 years old, we're like, hey, we never actually did this. We never wrote this scripture on the door frames of our house. So we did this with Cole. And this is Cole's, um, our 8-year-old. This is his bunk bed. And you can just look through all, you can click through all three of those if you want. It's just Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. And it, um, it says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. As Cole first learned how to read, those words were in front of him every single night. I don't know that you'd say he hasn't memorized. I just think he's really, really familiar with it. He didn't have to do anything. It was just there. I might have to do something to get the word of God in front of me because right now it doesn't have the place in my life that I think it should. Maybe you do as well. Um, so final thing is this. Just a reminder, the two things, first two things, look away from whatever it is that you're looking at. Not everything. Don't look away from your, like, you know, physics book. Like, you should study that if you're supposed to study it. If you're going to be an engineer, you shouldn't just know the answers to the odd questions in the back of the book, okay? Like, you should study enough. Be excellent at what you do. Read those things. It doesn't mean that we turn away from everything, but turn away from some of the places in particular where you've looked for life, where you've looked. And I'd say that one of the biggest things is we've looked at the lives of other people 
fellow people along the journey, and we've compared our life to theirs to say, they seem to have it all together, so maybe that's what I'll model my life, model my life after. Look away from whatever you've looked at to find life. Instead, look, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look into the word of God. Look away from the things we've held on to. Look toward Jesus. And then the final thing would be this, to look anew. One way to do that might be to read the Bible in a different way. There's this fantastic account out now by Zondervan called The Story. Has anybody got a copy of The Story? It's really cool. Here's how I know it's cool. Because my 16-year-old is on like chapter 35. It has a book on it that looks like it's Aragon or like, you know, it's part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And my 16-year-old looks at the copy and goes, this is really cool. What is it? It's the history of the Word of God written kind of in novel form. It doesn't claim to be the Bible. It's not what you're supposed to study. But here's what I found him doing. He's reading through it. And then he goes, did this really happen to Joseph? And where do you think he turns after that to find out if this really happened to Joseph? into the Bible that he's had for a long, long time. It's called the story. I think it's excellent. It could help you read through the story of the Bible in a year, and I bet you'll spend more time in God's Word as well in the same time. Another thing to do would be to grab a partner and do some topical memory. Verse memorization, the TMS system. It's fantastic. But just to get, you can clip up, by the way, your own. You can just clip up different portions of the Bible, write them up, and put them up on your mirror. Put them, maybe not on your car rearview mirror, that's difficult while you're driving. But like on the mirror, like when you shave, who cares? Um, but get together with some people, try to memorize a few scriptures. Maybe you'll say, I'm horrible at memorization. What if you can memorize two this year? What if two promises that God has for you, made real in Christ, are in your heart as you go through this year? That wouldn't be a bad thing. The other thing would be to read with friends. Have you ever thought about doing that? Just sitting with friends and reading through the Bible. Reading through Romans as if it's for the first time. Sitting together and discussing it. If you would do those things, or whatever it is that you need to do, my encouragement would be this. That if you would at, pray to the Lord every single day that he'll give you a love for his word. Just kind of like Eli had, man. He would defend it. Pray that God will give you a love for his word that is noticeable that makes a difference in your life. And then act for at least 30 days as if God has already given you that love. And what I mean by that is read like you absolutely are like, I'm just going to read. I'm going to read God's word all the time. You do it for 30 days while you're praying that prayer. God will answer that prayer. You'll want to read some more. You won't get to that chapter and close it. You'll continue to read. God's word is meant to be written on our hearts. And I don't think it's a contest. I don't think we need to find out if we win, if at the end we could recite the King James Version of the Bible from Braille onto blank pages. That's not the point. But that we would become better acquainted with, we would understand the God of the universe, that he would relieve us, free us from some of our spiritual blindness, that instead of looking at the things that we've looked at for life, we look more at God. That's my prayer for me and for you for this year. And... On the side note, I think the movie's great. I think you might enjoy it. And if you do, if you look through it, you'll see a few other things that will encourage you in terms of your own sense of what, is, what do I think of when I think of the Word of God and do I value it in such a fashion? Let's pray. God, thank you for, um, again, the opportunity to look at your Word together, for the difference it's made in all of our lives as we've sought to follow after you, the difference it can still make tonight. God, I thank you for good friends, friends like Becky, who I owe a cup of coffee to, or maybe two.
but thank you for the chance to just open your word, take a look at the places that we find you in real life, in cinema, in the lives of our friends, as we go through our day-to-day. You're there, you're real, you're the one that we should look after. Thank you for your word to us. May we treasure it this year. In Jesus' name, amen.